Hello, everyone. This is episode 23 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Chad Schroeder. Uh, a week ago, I sent out a Twitter poll and asked for the best season-long fantasy football player in the world, and Chad was the consensus pick. It wasn't even very close, Chad. I think uh, I think you probably had half of the total votes. Well, that's uh, it's first of all, it's quite an honor for you to invite me. Um, I've always uh, been a fan of yours. Um, uh, it's been fun to watch you play poker um, on TV and stuff, and and you do it in a classy way as well. Um, I, I've never known you to be one that gets uh, involved in a lot of the drama that can go on in the, the poker world, and, and uh, that's admirable. So I appreciate the invite, and then I also appreciate uh, a lot of my peers uh, recommending me to come on here. Um, there's really no other uh, gratification better than your peers thinking you're the best player. Absolutely. There, there were uh, quite a lot of compliments flying around that Twitter thread, as you know. So uh, I appreciate your, your words as well. Um, I do enjoy watching the drama. I don't like to participate in it. Um, now, fantasy football, I have long played daily fantasy and the analytics of that come naturally to me. There, there is uh, a group of poker players that play season-long fantasy. Uh, I've dipped my toe in there before. I'm not very good. And I have a lot of questions. And I know that most people are in, in my shoes. They're, they're not very good and they have a lot of questions. And I do believe that people who are, who are good at daily fantasy, uh, they believe that it will carry over to season long and it doesn't. Now, do you have, do you have a, a starting point for why uh, general sports knowledge and maybe daily fantasy analytical skill does not carry over to season long. Yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons, and it also goes both ways. Um, there's a lot of uh, really good season long players that have tried daily, um, myself included, and, and I do fine in daily, but it's not uh, not near as good at it as uh, as I am in a full season. But a lot of a lot of full season guys have struggled to to trans transition into daily as well, but. Uh, I think that uh, it just takes so much experience and, and so forth to learn how to construct a roster properly and uh, build the depth required to get through bye weeks. Um, you know, what types of, uh, what types of players do you want to litter your, the back end of your roster late in the drafts with, um, you know, a lot of guys, have dead spots on their bench. Um, whereas the good players will look for upside guys with those later round picks. Um, it, a lot of it just comes down to roster construction. You know, um, a lot of people don't know that you should wait on quarterback unless you're have played many fantasy leagues. Um, that it's usually better to wait on quarterback and, and, uh, a lot of times tight end as well. Um, and certainly not taking both of those positions early. Um, you want to be targeting the, the positions where you need to be starting more guys at, and that's typically running back and wide receivers. You want to be strong there to fill in the buys and injuries. Um, and a lot of people uh, make the mistake of going quarterback that are not experienced guys. Well, you got, you got deep in the weeds early there, and I'm, I'm happy for it because people who know me and listen to this podcast regularly, they – they know I can get a little bit selfish with the guests and I can dig into my areas of personal interest. So you, you went right there early and now I'm going to just pepper you with questions about how to do my, my draft. Um, that's great. I mean, that's easier for me to answer more direct questions anyways. So, so I know I'm going to alienate at least half of the audience right here, but I personally much prefer auction drafts to snake drafts. I think snake drafts are just not as interesting 
as as auction drafts, which have their own strange and intricate strategy. Um, and I, we have not talked about this, so I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, auctions are certainly more fun, and they're definitely more interesting. Um, the The problem that I have with auctions, there's a few problems that I have with auctions. Um, in my case, I'm oftentimes doing three, four, five drafts at a time when during the busy drafting season. And an auction takes your full attention. Um, you can't be doing other drafts while you're doing an auction because you're always involved, whereas uh, other drafts you have a little time before you pick again, you know. Um, so I don't play near as many auctions for that reason primarily. Um, and the other thing I don't love about auctions sometimes, um, I would find it to be a, a much more fun if, if the auctions were blind. Um, sometimes they become challenging um, in my case. Um, you, you, mean, you mean because they can use the information of, of one draft for, for the subsequent draft, like if you bid uh, 55 for McCaffrey, they can they can see that that's what you were willing to pay in in one draft, and you might be willing to do the same in a similar draft like that. No, not necessarily. But it, like, let's say that I bid fifty five on McCaffrey. I have a hard time closing out bids a lot of times because guys will be like, "Well, if Chad's willing to pay fifty five, it can't be that bad to go fifty six. Um, so it's it's hard for me to close out players and auctions a lot of times. I so I wish that it was blind bidding where nobody knew who was uh, winning the bid at that point. Just for background, I'm assuming that that you act as an advisor to other drafters, uh, maybe as a paid advisor, and and so sometimes they don't know it's you. I don't. I have not uh, chosen to get into the advisory. Uh, situations um i've thought about it a long time but i just don't think i would like it as much as i do just playing yeah um and playing has worked out well for me i've done very well so um i don't know if one day i'll get into the advice stuff or not but um as of right now i'm just going to keep playing i think there's a lot to ask about the draft i want to ask a bit about pre-draft preparation I once had an interesting discussion with the, the daily fantasy player, Kandia, who basically retired with a lot of success in daily fantasy. And it was, it was a very eye-opening discussion about exactly how hard the top-level players work. He, it was July. And I think we were doing something like playing golf or we were out and about doing something. And he said, he said, yeah, this is, this is about the last day that I, that I take off when we get into uh, late July and August, I feel like I can't take off a single hour. And he believed that he had to like work all day, every day in August, he had a checklist of things that he wanted to go through to be, to be ready for the start of the season. Um, and I can imagine for season long, the the preparation that must be done in any season, and this season might be extraordinary because of because of COVID preparations, but the the number of changes for personnel and all these things, and how how it will impact uh, depth charts and and opportunities, um, it must be quite a lot of work in say August. Yeah, it is. Um but I don't choose to put in much work actually. Um, most of, uh, most of my peers, um, that are playing in a lot of leagues, they're, uh, following football year round very, very closely. Um, I, I choose to not do that. I prefer to, um, not start drafting till about August 10th. And then I start going full bore. Um, I do some smaller leagues starting about August 10th and I usually get, my ass whooped in those um, while I'm start while I, and I just it's baptism by fire and then I started learning my way around and and what mistakes I was making um, and you know I'm pretty familiar with the player pool but 
if there's guys getting drafted at the end that I'm not real familiar with, then I'll, then I'll research them. And like, why is uh, such and just keep, why is he taking this guy late in every draft? And then I'll research and usually it makes sense, but I'm very, I guess you would say lazy. I, I, uh, I let the market sort of sit, uh, set the prices on everybody. And then I just kind of look to come in and see where the market's not efficient and then, um, start feeling my way around and, um, go from there. Um, I also very in drafts, the draft itself is where I, you know, excel and, and put in my preparation, um, so, Not necessarily researching the players all year. So to to set a context, let's suppose we're playing on Yahoo and we've got, let's just say, 14 teams and we're doing a full point PPR sort of standard-ish settings. Um, you go in. Uh, a, t- a typical tough league is bidding very aggressively for your top your top five players right and the the rationale is that those players have extremely high uh projected fantasy points above replacement are you the type of player that that bids aggressively on your like top three picks like tries to get mccaffrey or are you a a more balanced drafter I used to be a, a balanced drafter, um, and, and my auction results weren't very good. Um, I have since gone to more of a stars and scrubs type of approach, um, where I won't uh, waste very much money on my bench. But it also depends on, uh, you know, I, I think Yahoo might have like five bench spots or or. Not many more than that, right? I, like I think some right. some leagues have some leagues have ten bench spots. You know, the more the more bench spots there are, the less quality is going to be in the free agent pool. Um, but if there's only five bench spots, there's going to be guys you can pick up to stream at almost every position if you need them for buys or injuries. Um, so I don't really concern myself with. Uh, having like $5 players on my bench, I, I prefer to spend almost all my money on my starting lineup. Uh, and so you do find yourself bidding aggressively for what you view as the, the top. I, I do now. Yes. Yes. Um, and what, what I found sometimes that uh, you want to be in control. If you, you want to get the guys that you want to have on your team, not if, if you wait, sometimes you find yourself a, there becomes sort of a panic, like as the good players are all going, then there there's a few teams that don't have a good player yet. And sometimes the, the bidding on those guys ends up uh, right up with the top guys because there becomes a demand to, to sort of have a cornerstone of your team. Um, so I just, I prefer, and I, you know, I used to not nominate guys I wanted, but now I'm not afraid to uh, go ahead and just nominate the guy I want. and find out if I end up with him or not, and then I can plan accordingly um, and come up with a backup plan if he goes for more than I was comfortable with. Um, but I, I'm very much uh, aggressive now, um, and it, it can backfire if your guy gets hurt, you know, the, but any guys can get hurt, but I, I prefer to play it aggressive now, and it – has gone better for me in auctions recently having done that. Makes sense. Now you tipped your hand a little bit by saying that you had McCaffrey as number one, or I thought maybe you said that. Um, but in general, there's been a shift in the past five years for both daily and season long where uh, pass catching running backs have shot way up in value relative to wide receivers. It used to be that you would, you would pay for the elite wide receivers with unmatched opportunity, your, your Antonio Brown and Julio Jones of old. Um, and now there's much more favor on the, on the pass catching running backs. Um, do you, 
do you have a preference? Like if you can uh, pay up the big salary dollar, do you have a preference for say wide receiver over running back or you, you just, you just go based on projected points or how do you think about that? I think each year is a little bit different, but uh, I think I could say fairly confidently that for this year, um, it seems like the wide receiver depth is very, there's a large pool of quality guys that can be had for cheaper prices and auctions. I, I think that it's a very deep pool at wide receiver. Um, so I would probably this year get a cornerstone running back um, with one of my big spins um, and possibly even two big spins. You think about that um, mostly based on the particular setting this coach is going to really use the guy intensely and the workload is there provided no injuries. Um, we're, we're just looking for those, those guys that are always going to have it regardless of game script and, and things like that. Yeah. And I also, uh, I try to shy away from taking, um, guys that, that don't profile to be great pass catching backs. Um, like, and it's hurt me the last couple of years on Derrick Henry for sure. But uh, I don't really draft guys like that. I just think that they they can only do so much damage when they're, you know, running for 120 yards but catching one pass. Um, if they don't get in the end zone, they're going to come up pretty small. Um, I, I just think that the ways they can hurt you is somewhat limited. So I prefer uh, – in the early, basically in all rounds, um, just staying away from guys that aren't going to catch passes. On that discussion, the one of the benefits of a of a pass catcher is that their their production is reliable from week to week. If they're catching ten passes a lot of weeks, they just they're always putting up a good fantasy score. They have a nice floor. Whereas Derrick Henry, he gets in the in the end zone twice. It's a good week. Otherwise, you don't know. Um, do you think a lot about distribution, about, about having a high floor guy, or do you just think about, um, projected fantasy points? You know, I don't really dabble with projections too much in general, to be honest with you. Um, that might be my mistake, by the way, you might've just pinpointed my mistake. I rely, I think too heavily on projections, which is essentially what other people think. And they might not even think very strongly about them in daily. I agree that projections are the key to everything, but I do it in season long. See, I, um, when I think about season long, the, the methodology that makes sense to me logically is to, is to focus all of your energy on projecting fantasy points above replacement. And then, concentrating your your bid dollars on uh positions that have a scarcity and 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 b uh, players in those positions that have high uh fantasy points above replacement and the only way i can think to do it is to use some projection system that's projecting fantasy points and then just trying to estimate what replacement value is and then getting the spread of the expected fantasy points versus replacement and, and going by that. The problem is that the, the projections, it's just, you're only as good as your projection system. And uh, I haven't found a, a very good one. NFL projections are so, so hard and so off. Um, so many times that I, I think I don't even look at them. Like I said, I mean, I look at it more of a, even when I'm preparing for an auction, like Christian McCaffrey is going to have a certain value um, and he'll be one of the first guys nominated every time anyway. So you can see what he goes for. And then it gradually going to scale down. Um, and so like the 12th man, so, you know, the 12th guy drafted in a snake draft, it should gradually scale its way down. Um, and that's what I use to sort of imagine what the projections would be, but not actually 
look at projections. Um, for me, it's about trying to maximize jamming in as, as much round value if I was doing a snake draft as I possibly can. As much what type of value? I'm sorry. I like to look at auctions as though I'm I'm ending up with a snake draft team. Right. Because I do mostly all I do a couple hundred snake drafts, right? So I, I want to have an auction team that ends up getting more value than what I could have got if I was doing a snake draft. And that's how I sort of uh Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I like I like that approach. Now, if you if you start from the the end of the draft and kind of reason back, um, for inexperienced players like myself, there are strange things that happen at the end of the draft. Um, I have a little bit of an advantage because relative to most people, I know the player pool very well. Um, but I don't know the strategy, the end draft strategy. So and this is going to sound naive to you, but basically what happens if you're inexperienced is you have a couple of tensions in your mind. One tension is that you don't want to end with money because psychologically that feels like a waste. The, the other tension is that um, if you're not going to end up with money, then you need to have uh, a decent bit of salary left over when you get to, say, the final four players. Because let's just say in the bad case scenario, you only have, I don't know, $4 left and you have four players to go then always you nominate a guy for $1 and someone comes and bids $2. So it's sort of like if you nominate a guy to get him, you kind of need to have $3 because you're going to bid one and then someone else is going to block you and bid two. And then you kind of need to bid three. I, I, maybe you could walk me through that, that sort of elementary tension at the end of the draft. It gets back to the, the size of your bench and, and the quality of the players that are not going to be auctioned off um, that you can get on the free agent wire. And so I'm, if you only have a five man bench, like I believe you might be the case in Yahoo um, where a lot of people do auctions. Um, I don't mind being in that situation that you just described where I keep getting bit over. Um, it doesn't really matter to me because I, I think that one of my biggest strengths is um, free agency and developing my bench with free agency anyways. So I don't care if I have five $1 players on my bench that isn't very good. As long as my starting lineup's good, I'll figure it out. Now, if there's a 10-man bench, like let's say you're doing an NFFC auction or something, um, with a 10-man bench and there's very limited stuff in the pool, then I would drastically change my approach and I would want to have those $3 players on my bench because I'm not going to be able to replace bad players very easily um, if everybody has 20 guys on their roster already. There's just not going to be quality on the, on the waiver wire. So you have, say, in the Yahoo example with the, with the five-man bench, you have certain desirable characteristics that you would like out of your bench. Um, maybe you could go over some of those desirable characteristics like upside, upside in the event of injury or some whatever they, they might be. Um, but you are not giving much value to the bench in general and you're not afraid of that situation where it's just all $1 players. Yeah, I might uh, try to get it. I might try to end up with my first bench player, be a guy that I would be comfortable playing, like a maybe a four or five dollar player, and then ones after that. Um, it's so different with the five man bench; it just changes everything um, from my perspective. Because um, I like hoarding handcuff running backs um, on my teams in general. Um, 
And again, most of my leagues are draft leagues, not auctions. And I hardly play any leagues that have a five-man bench. They're almost all 10-man benches. I like to have my bench littered with handcuffed running backs. And all of a sudden, if the starter gets hurt, I have a great player. Now in Yahoo or whatever with a five-man bench, it's kind of there's, – there's a lot more handcuffed running backs that just can't all be rostered because there's just not enough spots and people are going to need to carry an extra quarterback through bye weeks or an extra tight end through bye weeks, um, extra receivers when there's bye weeks or, you know, injuries also. So there just ends up being a lot of those handcuffed running backs on the, the waiver wire and bet a couple dollars and get my preferred handcuffed running backs that week to replace these $1 guys I got in auction. I might luck out and hit a home run um, if the guy gets hurt. Um, the starter gets hurt. You're you're thinking about that upside uh, optionality a lot on your on your waiver wire moves. The the handcuffed running back. All, how I all how I would proceed um, to develop my bench and how much I'd be willing to spend on my bench players in an auction. All strictly depends on what the quality of the player pool is like in the free agent pool. On bye weeks is. Is that something that's incidental to your – so for me, as relatively inexperienced, like the, the bye weeks is something that um, I have halfway in mind when I'm drafting, but there's so many other things that I really don't give it much consideration. What, what, is, what, what is your thinking about bye weeks during the, during the draft, during the auction? Are you thinking about it? Don't even uh, doesn't factor one iota to me. Um, Got it. In any draft or option. Got it. It's just something that you'll handle on on waivers and so forth. So I'm usually going to have, like I said, I'm usually going to have a bad bench, anyways. So to start with, and and so I'll be fine getting guys to to put in there during bye weeks off the waiver wire if it's a five man bench again, like Yahoo. Um, if it's a 10-man bench and the, the with limited quality on the uh, waiver wire, again, you need to have some playable options on your bench because you're not going to be able to just go get them on free agent wire. They're just not going to be there. So. Waiver wire strategy. Um, again, you have the, the tensions of the naive player. So me or any other season-long player, the, the tension for the naive fantasy player is that you have this waiver wire budget. Um, usually there's a lot of opportunity that comes in the first few weeks, but then you have this just natural tension where you want to get these players in the first few weeks because you have more of the season to use them, but you know that they're going to be bid on quite quite aggressively and everyone has observed that it frequently happens that you have some some running back that's thrust into a high workload position and he he becomes the obvious waiver bid and um i think last season was one where there were at least one probably two instances where there was a there was a max bid player that basically had one week of production and nothing else um, so how do you, do you have a general way of thinking about waiver wire bid strategy? How often does it come up that there's a, a guy that you should max bid for in the, in the early, uh, weeks? There each, there, there's a lot of great fantasy football players. The guy that I think is the best, Mike Santos, um, He's very, very aggressive. Um, he's also a very good evaluator of talent. And when he watches the games back and he sees this guy can make a difference, he'll spend a lot of money and go get this guy. Um, I take more of a patient approach. Um, I like to, uh, as long as my team's in good shape, I like to control the bidding uh, in the back half of the season leading up into the playoffs um, and, and let the guys go crazy early on. 
but it all depends on how, how good my team is. You know, if this difference maker comes about say week four bidding, so your team's zero and three and it needs some help, then I, that's where I'll get aggressive. doesn't matter how much money I have to spend later on if I'm eliminated. Um, so I sort of uh, use the approach of the stronger my team is, the, the less I'll bid on those guys. Um, and also with uh, having a couple hundred teams and inevitably uh, by just putting in reasonable bids, I'll sneak guys through in some of the leagues um, for a few hundred bucks where they're going for eight or 900 bucks in most leagues. That's one advantage of having a lot of teams that I'll, I'll sneak through some guys in some leagues for bargain prices just by accident. Um, but generally speaking, depends on how your roster looks. You know, let's say that, let's say you have the running back also that's creating this opportunity for this guy that's gonna be bid on heavily. Something happened to him where he's gonna be out six or seven weeks. Like, let's say like last year, I think there was a, a good example was Barkley getting hurt and Gallman was heavily bid on. And Gall and then Gallman didn't didn't really produce outside that first week, right? Yeah, he got hurt the second week on his first carry or something, and then then Barkley was back by the time he was healthy again. But but yeah, that's an example. Uh, if I when it looked at that time like Barkley was going to miss five or six weeks, and I have Barkley, and then let's say I'm one and two or zero oh and three, I got to do something to to fill in that spot. So yeah, then I'll bid very heavily on Gallman and uh, figure it out. But ideally, I prefer to control the bidding down the stretch than being real aggressive early on. But um, most of the great players that, that I'm competing against um, would argue otherwise, and they're very aggressive early on. So what are they losing out on in, in that situation? They're very aggressive, and they – let's just say – uh, very aggressive in a 14 person league means your waiver budget is gone early or it's close to gone. So what are the, what are the drawbacks of proceeding through the season with no waiver budget or very little waiver budget in competitive leagues? Um, you know, the biggest league got plans at $20,000 league and you're, you got guys, uh, they're very well aware of everybody else's rosters and and uh, know what problems they have and um, like I, I won't if somebody uses their money early and don't, doesn't have a lot of money left I I will make life very difficult on them um, they won't get guys that I don't want them to to get to replace their guys on bye weeks or injuries. I want to make them pay extra for that initial big bid they got, you know, so they, they can't improve their team the rest of the way. So really the aggressive strategy is it's something you would never use if you felt really good about your team. Like if you felt really, if you felt your team was super solid, you'd, you'd much prefer to have all the optionality later in the season. That's, that's generally correct, but I will say this. Um, I'll still put in a very significant price-enforcing type bid. Um, if there's a guy that I would bid eight or 900 on if I needed him badly, I'll still make a four or $500 bid um, that's not going to completely destroy me if I think he's a, a big-time difference maker. Um, so I kind of can call it a price-enforcing bid where I'll be thrilled if I get in for that price. But now it sounds like it sounds like there's a group that I'm judging from the Twitter thread that nominated you the best season long fantasy guy. There it sounds like there's a group that knows each other very well and has been doing it for years and years. And I would imagine that much like poker, it's a self enforcing group where um, things that are obviously bad for the community, like collusion are quickly detected and, um, and punished reputationally. Uh, is that true? And, and first of all, like, cause collusion, I don't even, 
know the forms that I could take. I mean, I could guess softballing on bidding and I, I could guess certain things. And then obviously trades based on one team being out, giving a favorable trade to someone who's still in there. There seems to be a lot of collusion that's possible. Um, but am I right in thinking that it's a pretty good self-policing group? Yeah, it's very much like poker from that standpoint. Um, there have been uh, not near the, the types of uh, situation. Poker has a, for every one way that something would come up in season-long fantasy sports, there's probably 50 things that will happen in the poker world. But um, there have been some interesting uh, situations. Um, the, the most blatant one um, – almost went unnoticed amazingly uh, in a, the NFBC online baseball championship with like a $350 entry, 12 guys basically joined the same league and uh, rigged it to, to, to end up that one of them had like a super team. And Finally, in like July or so, that, that team pulled into the overall lead. And then uh, a player actually went back and kind of looked at this team and like doesn't didn't make any sense how he could have all these guys. Um, there's just no way. And people were dropping elite players into the free agent pool and he was picking them up for very cheap bid amounts. It was really crazy and, and it's scary quite frankly that it didn't get noticed until the season was almost over um but then the nfbc uh, they handled it but um there there's just there's not too many uh blatant collisions that that have occurred really in the industry there's been some uh there's been situations that i think there was collusion but you can't really uh it's it's not really provable now trading does just from the naive perspective seem to be where um where collusion is is most possible or at least it could be soft collusion in that i give you a favorable trade this year when i'm out and you give me a favorable trade next year um uh, that seems like a problem for some for some leagues um but just maybe putting the collusion element aside and just thinking about trading. Uh, what's your approach to trades? Um, I play in very few leagues that have trading. I don't, I can't stand it really. Um, and, and is it, it, you can't stand it because of the, the collusive element or for some other reason? Yeah. I mean, it annoys me when you have the guy that um, taking this, Five hundred or thousand dollar league, like it's his only purpose in life, and he's constantly throwing out bids and explaining why these guys should take the trades. And you know, after sending out several hundred of them, eventually somebody's going to take a stupid trade. And um, I just, I just don't uh, like the overreactions to a guy having a bad week or two and then making an alarming stupid trade. Um, so I don't play in very many of them um, that have trading. Um, I prefer to – most of the places I play at, you have to just improve your team through the free agent wire, and that's it. That seems like a good approach. You said that there are certain positions that when you're drafting, you don't value highly, presumably because you you think they're easy to get through waivers or or – what have you um you mentioned i was actually surprised to hear you say tight end is one that you don't value because tight end is one where there are a lot of players that hover around replacement value but then there are some players that are so far above replacement value and you have to play a tight end so to me it seems like a kelsey would be someone that you'd would want to bid super high on um, what's wrong with that logic? Like what, what's wrong with the logic of, of bidding strongly on the two or three tight ends that have very high, uh, fantasy points above replacement. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but I would say this, um, 
from a team construction standpoint, um, you know, you only play one tight end, right? It's, it's, you're not going to be typically, you're not going to want to be flexing a tight end in your flex spot. Um, now last year, there were certain cases where if you ended up with a good tight end and then maybe you had Darren Waller or something that, that he was an acceptable flex play, but for the most part, you're not going to be wanting to start a tight end in the, in the uh, flex position. Um, so I prefer to make my big spends on the positions where I need to play more people, um, just running back and wide receiver. Um, the more P, the more of a position you need to have in your lineup, the more confident I want to be that I have a good stable of them. And the most confident way I can do that is by starting um, my team out having good ones at those positions. Um, and I just think that, uh, especially in like a Yahoo type scenario where there's only a five man bench, um, people generally can't afford to be carrying two tight ends. Um, so there's very good streaming options available. Um, and so I think I can make up some of that gap by playing matchups and playing good streamers. Um, if you just look at the projections at the beginning of the year and see Kelsey's supposed to do this and the guy you're drafting or, or getting in an auction is supposed to do this, you're right about the replacement uh, value. However, I think that that gap can be closed a little bit in reality by using smart uh, streaming strategies at the tight end position. That is very, very logical and clearly is uh, a mistake in the way I've been thinking about things. Um, so you mentioned that uh, less experienced players also overvalue QB and presumably a defense as well. Um, take us through the logic of those. So QB, um, I heard you say in another interview that with quarterback, there is often maybe one player that you're willing to pay for in a year. Uh, otherwise, otherwise you tend to go cheap at QB. Generally speaking, um, you know, if we're doing, if we're talking snake drafts here with the quarterbacks, it varies a little bit versus an auction. Let's let's say uh, let's say auction. How do, how are you thinking about it for defense and quarterback in uh, in auction? And. Defense is easy. I just try to find a $1 defense that has a good matchup the first week and then go from there streaming then the whole year. Um, and quarterback, um, given the limited uh, roster space in a, in a Yahoo type league, you can't really be carrying two quarterbacks. I try to take a guy, uh, a, a shot on an upside guy that's a dollar to $3 quarterback. Um, like last year, it was Winston for me. Um, where I think he has some juice and he can match other quarterbacks, but he's a cheap price tag. But you're not married to him if it's not working out. And then just start streaming every week um, with the 15 quarterbacks that are available on the waiver wire. You can find something that has a respectable matchup. And that way, you're, you're, you might get beat at quarterback a little bit, yeah, but – you should also have a, a elite wide receiver and running back play if you're saving your money at tight end and quarterback. And that's where I prefer to be strongest. So, Yeah. So I'm struggling right now because the strategy that you are describing, I have observed it being the winning strategy. It, it does seem to, to win and it wins over what, over what people like me who are somewhat knowledgeable uh, but not nearly as sharp as you think is a good strategy. And I'm just trying to understand why, like I'm trying here, here are the things. Okay. When you look at the scores each week, uh, your quarterback score and your defense score is often a relatively high percent of the total. Like it's relatively high absolute numbers. So that, that logic would lead you to want to have a good quarterback and a good defense. Um, and 
if you plot it out for the season in terms of fantasy points above replacement, you do have quarterbacks like a Russell Wilson that that uh, that have high fantasy points above replacement at the position. So that also would seem to merit paying for a good quarterback, especially since it's usually not so competitive in the bidding. Um, so, so take me through why the naive logic is, is wrong. Like why, take me through why it's in, in your observations, a mistake when guys are paying, I don't know what a number would be, but maybe like your top QB for the season goes for 15 bucks in Yahoo, a 14 person league or something. Um, why is that a mistake? And why is it a mistake to pay whatever it is, eight bucks, six bucks for the best defense? I'll touch on defense first because that's a little easier. Um, I consider myself very good at screaming defenses. Um, and I think rather than having an elite defense in an uncomfortable matchup, I would just as much prefer to have a mediocre to, to solid defense against the worst offense that week. Almost always I can make sure by streaming defenses that I have a situation that I'm reasonably comfortable with. Whereas I'm not comfortable with, uh, you know, New England when they're playing, if they're playing the Saints or something like that. Um, but you can't really drop them. You don't have enough room to carry another defense without compromising something else on your team. Um, so I prefer to just go at it uh, with the streaming and always have something that I'm reasonably comfortable with, at least that way. And also saving money in the auction for uh, the running backs and wide receivers. Now, and also sometimes the defense doesn't even uh, work out like you think. Like, if I'm not mistaken, last year the Bears were probably uh, the number one defense off the board because they had a big season the year before. Um, and they really weren't all that good last year in fantasy. So if you wasted money and got them, you really weren't rewarded for it. Um, I'm quite sure that I probably beat the Bears defense by streaming over what the Bears scored all year. Um, so that, that's just my approach. Um, a big part of it comes from the fact that you can't carry two logically. I would never carry two defenses. So, so a big part of it comes from the, from the fact that um, if you have the best defense, if you draft the best defense, you have to hold it, but then you're paying the cost of playing the strong offensive teams with that versus the streaming strategy where you can just choose based on the offense. Yeah. And, and as far as quarterbacks, um, I will say this, um, you need to be paying attention because it's happened before where I wasn't planning on getting a, a good quarterback. Um, and then next thing I know, a damn good quarterback ends up going for three bucks or something because a lot of people have the same idea in mind. And so you need to be paying attention and make sure that if you can get a Russell Wilson for five or six bucks, you know, go for it. Um, make sure that you're always price enforcing every guy that's on the clock up for bidding. You, you should have a, a number in mind that you're going to enforce it up to. Um, that way you're not caught, you know, making panic decisions, uh, you know, right up against the buzzer. In terms of this concept of enforced bidding, this idea that um, you should have a a dollar amount in mind for a particular player for their talent level. Are there sites that you rely on to, to get those estimates? Um, obviously if you're drafting on Yahoo, they have a suggested price, which seems to be kind of garbage, but, but then there are other sites where you could plug in the, uh, the number of players in the league. And, and I guess they pull from their own projection to, to guess what that player might go for given certain settings are there are there are there any tools that you rely I used on to try to to do some of that and like get some sophisticated enter all the, the stuff into the program and then it would crank it out and i would do it at a four or five different places and then get kind of an average and and then inevitably the auction starts and you aren't getting anybody for if you're trying to like bark like 
value shop, you're not getting anybody. And then you end up in a bad spot. And, that, and, and that's why I changed my strategy to be more aggressive, like we talked about at the beginning, um, and get, get good players that I want and then go from there rather than trying to value hunt. Um, it doesn't matter if you spend an extra $3 on an elite player um, that you know is going to be good or you're very comfortable that it's going to be good. Um, it, do, it doesn't really matter, um, especially if you're not spending up at quarterback and tight end. You can, you can, uh, you don't have to get the best value on everything. Uh, and it's not worth worrying about when you're starting your team. You're talking about your first three or four players. You can spend overspend by a dollar or two. It's not a, not a big problem. But overspend overspend by a dollar or two is one thing. But if you have fourteen teams and they're all sharp, then there is some winner's curse thing where the the guy who overpays the the guy who bids the most is tending to overpay, and you're you're getting. Yeah, if you could be assured you were only overpaying by three bucks, that'd be one thing. But uh, like, if McCaffrey is consensus number one in fourteen person leagues, there are some leagues where he'll go for like eighty dollars. I, I get you on the very top players. Sometimes they can go for uh, egregious amounts, and you just have to get off them. Then you know. Do you have any method in mind where you say, "All right, seventy is high, but I'm willing to do it, but eighty is I'm not willing to go there"? Is it just a feel thing, or what? I kind of always hope that uh, my top player isn't the first guy nominated. Um, I prefer it to be somebody that I'm not quite so interested in perhaps. Um, and then I sort of, uh, it's not a mathematical thing. It's just a thing in my mind where I, I have these sort of, I, again, I look back to the snake drafts and I have these perceived tears in my mind like, where are the drop-offs in talent at here? Um, like some, maybe it's between the eight and nine pick and a snake draft. Like I really don't like having the nine pick because I feel like there's eight supreme players and then a big drop-off. I try to always be like considering that in the auction um, and, and use what the previous guys have gone for to, to sort of gauge what's an appropriate price for me to be paying on this particular guy. That makes sense. Well, let's say, for instance, Barkley goes first, and let's say that I like McCaffrey by a, a fair bit more, you know, $5 more or something. Um, so let's say Barkley goes for 62 bucks or something. Um, then I can kind of say, okay, 70 or so is probably about the, the cap I would want to put on McCaffrey. Yeah. Because you sense like the temperature of the league in a way. And then also what I've also found in auction to be fairly effective is to go ahead and get two or three real good players, um, maybe two, and then sort of lay in the weeds for a while and let people spend money on the rest of the good players. So you're once again sort of caught up in money um, and find the right time to go back on the attack then. Um, when you're not going to get yourself in too much trouble being uh, very limited on your, what you have left in relation to your league mates. That makes sense. And you said your nominating strategy is straightforward in the early rounds. And I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be. Everyone knows these players are, are very good. It is now. And it, but I also will say this, um, if, uh, if for some reason I, I uh, let's, let, let's say that I have two good running backs for some reason. That's how I started my team. Um, so let's say I have two of the top eight running backs and I used a lot of money to get them. Um, then, then I'll often nominate the best running back left, in my opinion, to try to clear out money from somebody. Um, same thing if I – if I have uh, three good wide receivers to start my team um, and I don't feel that I'm going to be another elite or another expensive wide is not going to really uh, work on my team construct, then uh, why not go ahead and nominate um, 
the next best wide receiver because I'm not going to be able to afford him anyway. Let's make somebody spend some money, you know, so I can get caught up in the fun. Do you have trickery in the nominations later on or it stays pretty much straightforward? Yeah, each auction's a little bit different, I would say, but uh, really the, the trick I find myself battling is uh, at the end, like how crappy of a player do I need to bid on to actually get him versus having to wait a whole other time around to go again for a buck. Yeah, because you find yourself in that, like the, the dollar really makes yeah. a big difference. It's, you frequently do find yourself in that scenario that I was talking about, the $1 or $3 player. And, and there, there's like a, there's a bit of a, a cliff there. When you have $2 and you have a player in mind, you want to be watching like a hawk for that guy to get nominated so you can be the first guy to, to check in with the $2 um, in case nobody goes three. Now, what do you see as, as strongly different this year, the, the COVID year? Like, what do, you, what do you see as very unique about this year? Oh, that's it, a tough one. Um, I'm, I'm even contemplating not playing this year at all. Well, it's, it seems like if you do a, a business deal uh, and there's a lot of complexity involved, you have to think through all of the contingencies and, and contract for it ahead of time. It feels like in most years, it's so simple. We have the rules. The rules are the contract. It's worked in, in other years. And this year, there's so many different contingencies that could come up it might cause leagues to fall into disagreements. You know, what happens if they stop the season after five weeks? What happens? Like, there's so many different things that could happen where you might have some real conflicts. Is that kind of what you're thinking about? Yeah. Um, and also, um, there's just a myriad of factors that I think is going to potentially take that my edge away. Um, like, I know how to develop a portfolio of teams and, 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 uh, spread out my wrist. I'm not too overloaded on any certain player. Um, you know, I have a proven method that works for me and I'm pretty comfortable that it's going to work every year. Um, but this year there's so many different things that, uh, I'm going to have to do differently. Like for example, I, I often only carry one quarterback into Sunday, you know, most leagues I play in, there's a Wednesday bidding and a Friday bidding. And I usually go into the weekend with one quarterback and oftentimes one tight end because I prefer to stash handcuff running backs with as many spots as I can. Um, now this year, I'm going to have to carry two quarterbacks all the time and two tight ends all the time because um, you don't know if a guy's going to test positive or not until game day. Um, and therefore, I'm not going to have as many handcuff running backs which is a strength, strength of mine that sometimes end up with these ridiculous teams um, by that come together due to attrition and everything breaks my way. And I'm not going to be able to take advantage of a lot of spots that I have been in the past. Um, and then you have what you talked about. The season could end up shorter. Uh, the shorter the season is, the more variance there is. Um, the longer the season, the more I think that, I can use you know, DFS concepts to, to sort of grind down my opponents and, and end up, you know, out hopefully in a playoff spot in that league. Um, but the shorter the season, the less it's just going to randomize things so much that um, I'm trying to decide if it's worth it. Um, you know, I'm not one that – I'm kind of an all-in guy or, or not nothing. Uh, and so like last year I played like $470,000 worth of full season teams. I just don't know if I can justify being that aggressive with the shit show that could transpire this year. Makes sense. I guess some of the case for doing it is that since 2021 could theoretically look similar to 2020, hopefully not. Um, Perhaps if you didn't do it in 2020, you couldn't do it in 2021 because you, in 2021, maybe you would need all the knowledge that you acquired in 2020. Who knows? It's a bizarre time. Yeah, and also, also it might, uh, 
make me rusty the following year. Um, you know, if I take a year off, that's what I'm thinking. So, yeah. Yeah. I got to figure it, I got to figure it out because, uh, these sign, I, I either need to back out of my commitments that I'm signed up for soon so they can replace me or, or go through with it. Um, I just hope the NFL comes with some news and, you know, a little bit more of a, a plan here. It's just very vague at this point. Um, this Corona, this is something else. When do you think they plan to have a full protocol? The NFL? Well, I mean, as far as I know, like the, the teams that are playing that first Thursday game, I think they're rookies and uh, quarterbacks are supposed to report tomorrow. Like, I don't know how they can report if they don't even have any safety protocols in place. It's just uh, the whole thing's frustrating, and uh, this COVID's just frustrating beyond belief. As a sports gambler and fantasy football player, it's just a brutal, brutal uh, situation. Yeah, as it is for people in other occupations as well. Obviously. Yeah, it's life. It's life brutal. It's. Having all of these fakes, head fakes, where you start start up, having some move towards normal life, and then and then go back to similar lockdown. It's a strange time for sure. Well, I really value this time, and I improved so much as a fantasy player that it's going to be almost painful to release this podcast. I'm going to, I want to, I want to absorb the lessons in secret, but I, I am going to uh, release the podcast to the general public and my, my opponents, whoever they might be. Um, but yeah, this, I learned a lot. And when you explain things, it's, it's, it's just a simple way of say, of explaining to me why I've been completely wrong. And I have my own logic. Completely wrong. It's just like the tight end thing. It makes sense what you're saying. And I I was just telling you what works for me. And it's been a proven successful way of going about it. Um, What you say is ultimately more logical. Um, And yeah, I've, What's what's remarkable is that I feel like I've improved a great deal over the course of this hour. And there's not a lot of complexity to it. Like I can just take 10 bullet points away and I've improved like two full letter grades. You know what I'm saying? I, I think I do. I mean, people ask me, how did you get so good? And then... Um, it's just keeping it very, very simple. Um, it's not rocket science. Um, make smart picks. Don't reach for guys. Um, uh, like people need to, so many people need to try to win in these fancy methods of reaching guys up two or three rounds. You know, I don't do that. I, I never reach guys up. Um, it just, just be patient. Let the draft come to you. And, uh, keep it simple. And if I'm doing that over the course of my 200 teams, I'm going to end up with the guys I like plenty of times. I don't need to force them up a round or two to make sure I get them on every single team. I'm going to have them plenty. Um, If I'm taking guys later than they're typically going with every pick I make, or at least neutral times, neutral or later than they're going um, over the course of my 200 team portfolio um i should wear down the competition and i think i'm good at setting starting lineups using dfs concepts as well um people struggle sometimes setting their their lineups and i think that's a strength of mine also but um dfs is a is a powerful tool um to use in in season long games um especially when you get into bye weeks and you're rounding out your team um I try to sort of look at my season long team as though I'm trying to have the best DFS team I can that week with each team um, based on uh, matchups and buys and what I need to acquire on the waiver wire. So. One last question for you that's in the weeds. Um, if you're drafting in late August, let's say, 
are there places you could go to see what the consensus snake draft ordering is? Because at that point, by by the time hundreds of drafts have been done by experienced people, you could see like a, a snake draft ordering that's probably pretty reliable. The the most the best place that I've found um, to use um, is the National Fantasy Football Championships. Um, I am not certain if you need to have a paid team to see them or not. Um, I know you used to. I'm not sure if you do anymore or not. Um, but that's the best because you can sort it by dates. Um, so you can um, say, I only want to see what's happened in the last seven days, last three days, um, and so on and so forth. And that's the best. Um, and then I take it one step further and adjust off of that based on not only that, that'll tell me what the masses are doing, and then I also want to have my sheet reflect what the people I respect the most in the industry are doing when I'm drafting against them. And, and then I'll adjust the, the NFFC sheet or whatever accordingly and move guys up or down a little bit. Um, so then I'm sort of drafting more appropriately against good people. Hey, thanks so much. I'll see you soon. <laughs>